0: Welcome to the Book A Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. A warm welcome to all our listeners of Book A Week podcast. I'm Rajshree Rajmohan, graduate from SEPT, Ahmedabad, also a human rights activist, academician and a mother of two. I'm currently engaged as a senior architect with Chandramon Associates in Trivandrum, Kerala. I have coordinated Vyanishala a reading initiative for architectural texts for IIA, Indian Institute of Architects, and also uh, Trivandrum Talkies, which is a documentation of the city's oral histories. And with me today is uh, Rahul Mehrotra, the principal founder of RMA Architects, which is based in Mumbai and Boston. Rahul Mehrotra is Chair of the Department of Urban Planning and Design and the John T. Dunlap Professor in Housing and Urbanization. He has written, lectured extensively on issues concerning architecture, conservation, urban planning and design in Mumbai as well and and in India. His writings include Pankanga in 1996, that's on the Sacred Tank. Uh, Then he co-authored The Bombay, The Cities Within in 2001 public spaces in uh, Bombay, Anchoring a City Line, which is a history of the city's commuter railway that came in. Uh, the book was published in 2000. And Bombay to Mumbai, Changing Perspectives. Besides writing in Mumbai, he has written widely on architecture and urbanism. One of my favorite texts, in which, uh, which was published in 2011, was architecture in India since 1990. Um, and it is with this highly abridged introduction that I welcome Rahul Mehrotra to share with us insights into his latest book, Working in Mumbai RMA Architects, published in this year, published this year in 2021 by the SEPT University Press book. To begin with, I would say this is not a book, it is a tome. A critical uh, reflection on 30 years of um, an engaging design practice of in-depth documentation of writings and exhibitions and also academic engagements. It is meticulously edited edited by Kate Cahill into five segments, uh, each referring to uh, projects that um, address questions generated by the complexity of the design program and also its context, both micro and macro. The photographs are uh, by Rajesh Vora and whose frames not just capture the well-crafted spaces and its details, but also the invisible labor of RMA design team, their craftspersons and their model makers. Yeah, so nice to have you with me to to begin with. And I'm so glad that I I usually discuss your books with a group of uh, architects and students. And it's the first time I'm actually getting to speak to you, the author of the book. So it does feel a little strange. So to start with, one is this, this is a small photograph of the terrace courtyard outside your studio, which I think on page number three or four or something, and um, which has a large box, which had belongings of a family of vendors. And that was also the first uh, studio where you started your practice in 1990. Because when I see that photograph, the small little photograph, it talks about shared spaces, and the kind of silent negotiations we have with actually strangers, where in your studio you mentioned there was this family of vendors, and then there was also your uh, the, the the owner of the landlord landlord also with you, and and all three have to kind of use that space, and there is a certain kind of negotiation that happens. And then, and I think about cities also, and when, once we start looking at it from that lens. It's a large shared space, and we silently negotiate with each other and use it in different ways. And it's always in flux.
1: So, no, thank you, Rajshree. I mean, thank you for the generous introduction, Uh, but thank you for also framing the questions and starting off the conversation in the way you did. So I want to kind of um, start off by responding in two or three ways. One is to really link it a bit to what you said about architecture in India since 1990. And really, this book has been consciously designed as a second volume uh, to that book, even in terms of size and the way the font is laid out on the cover and all of that. And there is a, a, a kind of implicit message in a sense is that, look, one had outlined in architecture since 1990 the challenges of building in the Indian landscape. And here's some work we've done, which is propositional in terms of addressing some of those challenges perhaps uh, so that is the really the spirit of the book uh, but, and also uh, uh, emanating from that uh, i was then committed if i had as a critic bought a personal voice to looking at architecture more broadly in india then i must bring a personal first person stance in working in mumbai uh, to recapture my own um, experiences that's why in this book uh, i even deviated Uh, from uh, asking for a preface from someone or asking for book endorsements on the book. Uh, People will write that once the book happens. So uh, you could say that almost every word uh, in the book is my own word. Uh, It's not a word of legitimizing. It's it's putting my neck on the block to say, this is how I read the situation. You might agree or you might disagree. The next thing I think that um, characterizes the book is trying to walk this thin line between what is a monograph and what celebrates 30 years of practice, but what also is an attempt of a kind of reflexive or, or self critical to the extent that one can be self-critical uh, look. Uh, and I just feel that in, in some ways, both those books uh, are, are, are critiques or, or they are reflections also on the profession. And they are uh, critical of the fact that uh, we have many blind spots. Um, there's a lot that's happening in the built environment, as architecture in India since 1990 showed, where architects are not even involved. Uh, and these are the biggest commissions. We are in a bubble in a comfort zone, which is what state of architecture and state of housing as exhibitions try to say. Uh, and then working in Mumbai, you know, is a reflecting a reflection on our own practice and trying to synthesize the many concerns. And so therefore, another proposition that the book makes is that we shouldn't see research, writing, exhibiting, building, teaching uh, as necessarily isolated activities, but they can have great intersectionalities which we should be less self-conscious about maybe. Uh, I think the integrity within the cultures of each one of those sub-practices is very critical to safeguard, uh, but we shouldn't be we shouldn't make them so precious that they don't create the productive transgressions uh, that actually inform them. So those are just sort of, uh, let me say uh, the preface, in a sense, to our conversation, uh, to situate the book, so we can get that out of the way.
0: Almost feels as if a critic is writing the book when you read it. It doesn't. Why I make I make the statement is primarily because uh, you ask very poignant questions throughout, and and you also state problems that you faced during the project. And if I were to compare it with the other monographs I have read earlier and uh, of other. Uh, Pro, uh, uh, other architects uh, it's all good 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 you know it's it, it, there is a there is a positive uh sentiment and everything is right but everything is never right from the beginning of the project for instance uh, when you talk about the hatigaon project and uh, and the kind of challenges and you have also <laughs> you have also showcased the timeline there and how the kind of challenges you face from the beginning and how it is uh and what we see, or the, the student sees, or when your projects are also discussed in studios extensively. So, when the student sees is the final project, the, the design and the plan and the section, and they are not seeing the backstory at all, which went into the whole making or the whole process of the design process. That's a very interesting um, uh, project to un- actually understand the complexity of a design practice, where sometimes, like you have mentioned in the book itself, that you, it's never a linear path. And sometimes you start where you, in the Hathi project, you start with the landscape, isn't it? Instead of actually getting down to designing the block and you start reworking uh, from revitalizing the entire landscape so that this design, the built insert is kind of more viable and sustainable.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And I think you've picked those up very well. Uh, because in, in the process of self-reflection, also comes the admission of mistakes or the admission of blind spots. Uh, you know, we've talked about the, a project we've done uh, uh, where we feel it completely failed. Uh, in Hatigao, you could see failure if you only looked at the artifact uh, of the building because it life in this case corrodes the architecture immensely. But then if you actually reflect on the process, you see, uh, you know, amazing things that emerged and organically evolved, even though we were not conscious of it as we were doing it. And so that's what reflection uh, always tells you, because, um, you know, often um, uh, when we have monographs or when even architects present their work, uh, it's all celebration of success. Uh, In fact, I always provocatively Say to my colleagues that we should be doing a conference on failures that we should get 10 very well-known architects to come and present one project where they think they failed why do we always celebrate only success and so students find the whole process very intimidating because what they see on the screen are these amazingly spanky projects which uh, you know they just feel intimidated about being able to achieve that kind of success right so so in self-reflection also comes uh, the surfacing of challenges of problems of thinking out of the box which while you're in the process uh, of, uh, of of designing building uh, you're sometimes not aware of you're just making decisions based on your own values on your own experience you're making intuitive leaps that take you to the right place uh, but therefore it's very critical and it's contingent it's it's a responsibility for all of us to reflect, on some of those processes, because that's how we can actually construct knowledge for the profession. Uh, It only comes through uh, reflection. And I think it's in that light, I'm gonna use that as a segue uh, to um, pick up on the question or the observation that you had made in the beginning of my introductory essay in the book, which is about the observation of the temporal use of our own little office space. Uh, And, you know, and I think that really was something which I can now, in reflection, look at more clearly and write about it in the way I have uh, written about it in the book. But when I was going through the process, I'd just come back after finishing my master's. In my master's uh, pieces, I had tried to uh, uh, talk about what I call the soft city, which is what is a city, what is, what is a life world in a sense that occupies the hard city that we all are all obsessed with? And what does that mean? And how can it kind of inform our processes? And I was very intrigued with what was happening in our courtyard, the way we were using it, the way the landlord used it, the way we had redefined the space so that he could come in and not disturb us. And this notion I'm saying it very clearly now, but uh, at that time it was just things that were bugging me. But clearly the, the notion of the temporal use of space, the notion of temporality, femorality, the notion of the kinetic city. I mean, it all took me 10 or 12 or 15 years to write up and reflect about, but it was it was you know something that had been bugging me because I kept feeling that uh, there was something not right about the way we were imagining the city should be. I mean, in short, Uh, I would just like to say that I think it's very critical that we we take every observation as valuable, uh, but that value would come only if you can communicate it. And I think uh, within the profession, we should be talking more about books and more about writing. And I think with a critical accumulation of that, which is why I'm glad that this series is focusing on Indian authors or writings on south asia uh, because in these geographies we need a critical mass of reflection before the appropriate theories will emerge uh, which would be useful for the next generation
0: talking of reflections i also when I, it's it's the first time i'm seeing all your projects together here i mean in 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 one single book and uh, that's when i realized that the innumerable collaborations you've done through your 30 years here. I mean, uh, and each collaboration has led uh, into different kinds of inferences and learning from the documentation or mapping projects, etc. And I think it began with 1994, the, the formation of the Bombay Collaborative. And uh, when I uh, when I look at practices around here in India, not many are actually indulging in this kind of collaborative ventures. And I think this is uh, something that we all should be thinking of. Uh, of plugging in with others who can actually, um, we learn from them at the same time, we offer a different perspective also by not knowing about that particular uh, specialization.
1: One has always been interested in collaboration. I I gain a lot of energy personally from people, from being with people, from interacting with people. That's uh, a temperament uh, and uh, a personality trait. I I think realize. Very early on, even as a student. Uh, and the critical thing then was, of course, within the practice, is to think about what are the appropriate things to collaborate on. And, um, you know, if there's a certain amount of complexity that you feel you don't have the bandwidth to, it makes it a necessity, which is important. It must be a necessity. If you do collaboration for the sake of collaboration, they don't go very far. And then the Bombay Collaborative that you mentioned, which then led to the Taj Mahal Conservation Collaborative, were all conservation projects. And that's how I got involved with the Urban Design Research Institute initially, because we were doing urban conservation work in Mumbai, is I felt that in conservation, the decisions are far more objective than when you do new design projects. Uh, because you know in conservation, an old building exists, and they, the subjectivity is minimal, so which means your relationships in a collaboration can be much more solid. You don't get into unnecessary fights over subjective things. And you know, when the conservation movement and things started in Mumbai, there wasn't any money to pay you. We were doing most of these things uh, almost as a service. Uh, they, you know, they, it, it's only in the last fifteen years that they've become projects, and you know, people charge like they charge for architecture. So when we started the Bombay Collaborative, it was it was you know, partly a service, partly the idea that we would professionalize conservation. And then there were three, four of us who got together. There was Sandhya Savant, who was, I think, you know, the first person I spoke to about this. And then there was David Cardos. There was uh, an engineer called Sudhir Deshpande. Uh, and part of the spirit of this was that we would also fill in for each other's time when we were doing these uh, not commercially viable projects sometimes, which means that our offices could support each other and that would make it more viable. And so th- that's how this whole notion of collaboration uh, emerged. And it started as a friendly thing. Uh, and uh, and then it evolved into a company that we formed and we actually did projects. Uh, and, uh, and then when I was approached to do by the Tata group to uh, create a site management plan for the Taj Mahal. I realized then that was an ideal uh, project to do this kind of thing. So we formed an entity called the Taj Mahal Conservation Collaborative. Uh, So it didn't have any of our names in it, but it had many experts who came around as part of the collaborative. We worked on for 10 years on that and it's interesting that even on the site in Agra that we were known as the TMCC. People would refer to the TMCC. There is many of the ASI officers and others didn't even know our individual names, which for me was a sign of success uh, that it wasn't tied to personalities. And I think, I think the framework of collaboration allows uh, a dissolution of you know, personal identities, which means it allows for a much more open um, uh, flow of knowledge and expertise I mean, I think these are the kinds of values that I think one becomes more aware of through self-reflection. One was operating and doing these things intuitively, but I just felt that after 30 years, it was my responsibility for another generation to articulate these reflections in a way that um, people could use it to guide their own paths. Sometimes,
0: it's a very interesting statement you make here, which I, I have written down actually. Uh, the uh, practice of urban design is about activism. And how do we stay? later on, ask, like how do we stay relevant in the service of society? I don't know if many architects would actually ask this question ever, and this was the first time I was seeing uh, anyone make a statement of looking at urban design. I saw many students aspire to do, uh, take up urban design as specialization after their graduation in architecture. and And I don't know if any one of them that are actually thinking about it in this in this direction to look at it as, if, uh, as a very intense and direct engagement within with the public realm?
1: No, that's a very good question because architecture, I mean, sorry, urban design is seen as big architecture yeah. uh, and it's not seen as the bridge practice it is because the origins of urban design um, and the spirit of urban design really resides in the fact that it's a bridge practice. It's not even a discipline yet because it doesn't have adequate uh, theoretical cultures that sort of define its own identity. Planning is a discipline, architecture is a discipline, but urban design is yet a practice, and it's a bridge practice. And what do I mean by that? And what I mean by that is that, you know, planning uh, over the years and decades has become rather abstract. The planning has become, uh, uh, you know, about uh, guiding, as the word suggests. Uh, plans. Uh, And these are codified in the culture of planning uh, as two-dimensional propositions, right? They become land-use plans or they become policies, etc., right? And then on the other hand, uh, the discipline of architecture, and this is also about the insular silo-like natures of these disciplines, architecture has become about the autonomous object. Uh, Architecture has become very site-specific, architects put on a blinker when they look at their site. And you know besides the setbacks and the FSI that's available there, they don't even care what happens on the street uh, because they feel they're not empowered to do that. Urban design is a practice where uh, it really involves architects who get trained to become more aware about the city. Uh, and it is about active, activism and advocacy because the inherent responsibility being an urban designer is to bridge that gap between the specificity of architecture and the abstraction of planning, which is to create feedback loops, looking at planning policies, understanding the built form implication of planning policy because one is also an architect, and feeding back through activism to planning to alter those policies to create a better built environment.
0: More than 500 architecture colleges now in India, and if you uh, were to look into their thesis studios uh, at the graduation level, what they are, the focus essentially becomes of uh, creating forms, which iconic forms. And this comes also from this whole uh, plethora of images from Pinterest, etc., where there's no understanding of the context or uh, what is happening around in the history or the culture, but it's the image, how and, and the skin of, the, of that particular project. Uh, and that is when I thought your, this particular book was very relevant because I can now, be, we can showcase that it is not only about your uh, building or the spectacle that a building has to be. Buildings don't have to be a spectacle to begin with. And you very rightly, uh, I think, I don't know which page, but you uh, actually talk about the, the, the city itself is not about, has, does not have a singular identity as such. And buildings don't make it either. And this all, a city is completely in flux and constantly moving, and there's nothing very static about it. So, I think this is something that, uh, that is a huge takeaway from this book would be that, that the students could actually pick it up and start looking at projects from a very
1: different perspective. If there's any uh, thread of thought that goes through the whole book, it is context matters, uh, that uh, you have to look at the context in much more nuanced ways. Uh, And, you know, we are taught as architects to see the context as mainly the tangible aspects, which are, you know, climate, wind direction, sun, uh, and then, you know, there are some ambitious teachers and some ambitious students who also try to excavate the embedded histories in a site and try to understand it. You could argue the implications and the the, the, the imposition of uh, some clients to use vastu uh, is another form of a kind of a site-specific context-related uh, thing. But, you know, that is yet the context in the way an architect sees the context. Uh, and I think one of the questions I've asked in the book is, uh, why can't we also look at the context of the context? So what is the context that this context is nestling in? And for me, then comes all the way questions which have to do with justice and inequity to questions of of marginalized communities um, of of, of that site sitting within a landscape that is surrounded by these forces. Uh, The impulses of the government to move towards neoliberalism, the political ideologies, the disjunctures that occur when the social modernization process hasn't even been completed and aesthetic modernity is what is representing us, right? These are all complex disjunctures. So if for every project you go beyond that site specific, site specific context reading to placing that within its broader context, you come up with amazingly complex questions. And so I feel that we are not um, ambitious enough in the way we teach students how to embrace this. So therefore, I think in terms of pedagogy, the implications uh, are twofold. Uh, One is, I think we have to rethink the sequence of how we situate um, uh, the 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 pedagogical framework. No, We start with a, a small house, we go to a community center, we go to maybe housing, then you're expected in your fourth and fifth years to do an airport, for what reason, I don't know, or you expect to do. So it's supposed to get bigger, which means you're, you're, what we are teaching students is that if the scale gets bigger, your skills are getting bigger because you can deal with more complex problem. I think conversely, I think it should be a sequence of complexity, a sequence of, um, of, of beginning to get out of our comfort levels. Uh, I think thesis projects should be small. They should be about questions of climate change, reversibility, questions of, what is the implication of marginalized communities when we are building in a locality? It might become very small projects, uh, but they might be tremendously ambitious in terms of their complexity as wicked problems almost, right? I remember in my own, and these are things again, retrospectively, I find, um, you know, one had done, but I now in, in 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 retrospect, I find as being so valuable is my final year studio where this trend of doing bigger and bigger was even happening when I was in the student. I chose to do a very, very small uh, uh, school in Lakhabhai Patelni pole in uh, the pole area where there were three houses that had collapsed and the site was just three houses wide. And I did a, a, a little neighborhood school there and built it in steel because uh, it could be prefabricated and taken into the pole. And it also is the same vocabulary as the pole wooden houses or frameworks. It was the smallest project. And I, now when I look back, I'm glad I did that because it, the bigness never obsessed me, you know, um, of, of what architecture would be, but the questions became very exciting. Uh, and so I think that is um, really a big question for for education.
0: And talking of questions, it is triggered. Uh, there is this uh, wonderful quote by uh, Charles Correa in I think uh, the Cubit uh, uh, the Qubit Thomas uh, Thomas Cubit lecture in nineteen eighty three that he had given where he says that we are only as uh, big as the questions we address. And uh, and we must confront them also and uh, that's what comes to my mind. And when I um, look at your own work in, in, irrespective I mean in, in your book you trace uh, projects from interior to your an interior down to um, the uh, larger scale mapping and conservation projects, etc. And one there, there are like maybe I'm wrong, you could correct me there are these five or six points that come through which will always be, there, irrespective of the scale of your project. Uh, one would be a reinterpretation of the design program, no matter what the, the functions are required. It, that, that concern is always there. You like to reinvent it, make it go upside down, look at it from a totally different perspective. So something of the, that engagement happens with the design functional program. Another is a, a restrain in um, the material aesthetic. That it will never be a collage there will always be three or four uh, materials and that is be your color palette with which you work with. Another, are uh, all the plans when I look at them and even when we discuss it in the studios and uh, we think and the first thing that comes so this is a very pragmatic s- solution, very simple. But simple, And I usually explain to my students, simple things are the most difficult to do. It's very difficult to do something very simple. And uh, also a very important quality is empathy. I mean, which I think among architects and students, etc., we lack. We don't just have it only. Somewhere down the line, we have just flushed it out of our system. So, and which I think um, comes through. Uh, and also, also the relationship, obviously, like you mentioned earlier with the context, irrespective of the scale of the project. There's always some interesting ways in which you connect with the history or the landscape or uh, the culture of that place. So um, these are the things that come through. And when I look back at Charles at uh, that particular quote, I'm like, thinking that what is the primary question that you seek to address?
1: And I think for me, the primary question is really, like I said, context matters. How can that project benefit the locality that it's landing in? Uh, For me, I think that becomes really uh, the the important question. I mean, it really is uh, about, uh, you know, thinking globally, but really acting locally. Uh, And so for me, every question then becomes, uh, if a rich person is building a weekend house near this village, what does it mean for the villagers? What does it mean for the person building it? What does it mean for the culture how could it disrupt in a positive way the culture of the place or could it contribute to the to the culture of the place Uh, it's always questions like that whichever project uh, you point out i can the lmw corporate office in coimbatore which was you know when we were just starting the practice we were lucky to get that and that project wasn't known by anybody because the clients were so low-key they said they don't want it published anywhere. So I think the first time it's really been published in any substantial way is almost 30 years later. But there... It was 1994 when they approached us. 1992 was the um, liberalization of our economy. As part of the brief, they had told us they want a seven-story glass building with a fountain and garden in the front and parking behind. Uh, They had an Australian curtain glazing manufacturer who had worked out an MOU to import the curtain glazing. So they were ready to go with that kind of global image paradigm. And for us, you know, when we looked at that context, it was at the edge of the cantonment, it was partly industrial, no, no building was more than three, four stories high. Uh, and uh, so for us, the, the form, I mean, we said, no, it's, it's, it's got to actually reinforce this fabric, not disturb it. Uh, but more than that, at that point, we also got into many intangible things, because, for example, those clients said you've got, they had a very handsome budget for the art. Uh, And I said, look, we'd like to get artists involved in building uh, elements like railings and screens and jalis and things like that. And and then that led to a conversation where, you know, I felt if these clients were so um, uh, aware, they were all young and they were very aware of aesthetics and of Indian traditions. So they were all Uh, you know, what I used to call, I used to call them disco swamis, because, um, you know, they could straddle the West and East very easily. They knew the shlokas, they participated in prayer every morning, Uh, they were totally into vastu, uh, but they had all studied in Switzerland and America and, you know, grown up with German nannies and, you know, things like that. And I I found in 1994, we were four years into our practice, and I found this was just a mind-blowing synthesis of many things, And I felt the building should represent that and not be a one-liner of a seven-story glass building. And for me, therefore, that was the context that I had understood. I'm saying all this very clearly now in retrospect. And I say this often for students, that you you can't be so clear as I'm being clear about these readings when you're doing the project. Then you're, you're just using your intuition, your value, your experience, and that's why education is so important because it programs you to understand these complexities and synth- synthesize them in ways they can be expressed in built form, and so for me that was a particular context that I understood and I took on. So that's why the LMW building is very different from the KMC corporate building, which is a five-story garden sitting in Cyberabad, which is just glass boxes. Uh, and so, so it, 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 so this is what I mean by, you know, how do you go beyond the context of the boundary of the site you're working in and, and pull in all these sort of forces. Which then makes architecture instrumental, because architecture then has an effect uh, on and on what happens around. You know.
0: I also, share a very interesting little anecdote uh, somewhere uh, by um, your little introduction your interaction with uh, Glenn market and he talks about clients to you and what kind of clients one should actually have.
1: What basically Glenn Merkitt said that you have to be very careful also as clients choose you, you should choose clients because every client determines the next client, you know, and it's so it's, it's very, it's, it's, I think implicit in that piece of advice was the question of values. Uh, And, uh, and therefore, when you are working with someone, you also begin to share and you must be explicit about those values. You can't be just a gun for hire, uh, because uh, in architecture, actually, every project has embedded in it a project of resistance, uh, because there are perceptions of what the solution is, but because we are the ones trained to imagine those spatial possibilities appropriately, sometimes we're also resisting. To put it another way, I would think that it's a matter of alignment of agendas. Uh, So if my agenda aligns with you, and we know, and we are both open-minded about certain values and trying to find certain solutions, we'll work together. We'll be on the same side of the table, so to speak. But if I know that, um, and it's not to say we've done a project for a developer, but it was a developer that we felt we were on the same side of the table and he felt comfortable that we would resist what he wanted to do, which is what we resisted. And I think we came up with, I believe, a very nice solution. Uh, But uh, uh, I think that's what that was very good advice, and this was not advice in the beginning of my practice. I met him ten or fifteen years into my practice, uh, but um, we became good friends. But uh, uh, but you know, when he said that to me, it retrospectively made me make a lot of sense of what one had experienced.
0: First project which I had seen you, uh, done by you was I was I was just finishing college. I was still in sept, and uh, some senior told me you have to go there. You have to see this, and then that was bondage. The, the interior, product. and then after seeing that and of course I had no money to buy any of those clothes which Ashna had put up <laughs> but I was a regular visitor and she soon issues she to tolerate me there too so uh, and that's when I realized that in that about uh, context and there is sometimes and that's a basement it's a basement and you could recreate a small street and you uh, and there are these peepholes so you can kind of go in. And I see reflections of that also in all your other build projects. And what really stands out also are the, uh, the, the typology you talk about in your book, and that's the, the farmhouses, which is a very direct engagement with the rural landscape, a different cultural um, way of living. And then you are inserting this very elite family into that particular and why i found that is, uh, is uh, very different in your writing about your those farmhouses that you've done is how you're constantly trying to engage the local immediate population there with that particular house in some form And is that what you meant by soft thresholds
1: yes not no, very much absolutely what i meant by th- soft thresholds is you know the threshold is a very important element in any building we seem to uh, not pay it as much attention as we should be doing, right? So you, have, you can have hard th- thresholds and soft thresholds and architecture invariably creates very hard thresholds. Um, and we are doing that more and more. And it's a very dangerous instrument because then it separates society. So, you know, look at uh, a mosque or a church, uh, you'll often see the threshold is really bent because people have put their heads to it, they've rubbed it, they've taken grace from it, etc. Right? And, and it's not a door that's closed, but it becomes a moment people pause for whatever reason, it's an important thing. right? Borders between nations are thresholds, they're very hard thresholds. Uh, by default in architecture, we do that without realizing it. Uh, uh, keypad access makes a hard threshold. Uh, You know, that's why in even a building like the SEPT library, uh, one tried to keep as much of the ground floor very open and porous and accessible uh, just to create that embracing moment instead of having a door where you entered the library. uh, There's a huge transition, correct? I mean, they are using it so much for exhibitions that that wall is closed, but those are sliding panels where then through glass you see the library. So it's even more porous. because of space restrictions, it's not being used like that, unfortunately.
0: Uh, Your new book is going to be released in the library which you've actually designed, and that's an awesome feeling. Uh,
1: It is, it is. I can't tell you. I just just feel completely blessed to be in this position. I mean, I felt blessed to be even asked to do that library. It was probably the hardest project we've ever done in 30 years of the practice. We'll probably continue to be the hardest project for many reasons one was you know the responsibility of intervening there uh, of course the other was at the moment of intervening where all the politics that surrounded the campus were very intense uh, the third was you know intervening in a context and trying to do a building that goes down so that one can maintain the scale and not, spoil. that was supposed to also be in the master plan that we got from Christopher Benninger. It was a six-story building. Uh, and, uh, you know, then it became a project, project of resistance again to convince, you know, a bunch of architects that go three-floor under the, under the ground, which was not easy. Uh, so, you know, it was a very difficult project for many, 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 many reasons. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, one feels totally blessed about it. And I feel, I can't, I can't tell you how, how happy, but more than happy, more, I'm very, very humbled in a way that one has this moment where the book will be released by the library in the library one designed on the campus that one studied.
0: This has been such an engaging conversation. Thank you for joining us today and sharing insights on your book, Working in Mumbai RMA Architects.
1: Okay, thank you so much.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast available on all your favorite podcast apps.